This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, the Black Alliance for Peace steps up its campaign to get the U.S. military out of Africa. A scholar takes a look at Kwaito music and young people's politics in South Africa. And a new article celebrates the life and work of James Cone, the father of black liberation theology. But first, the U.S. political establishment is still reeling from the nationwide wave of demonstrations that followed the police killing of George Floyd. We spoke with Manifa Bandele, a veteran activist from Brooklyn, New York, who sits on the policy table of the Movement for Black Lives. Bandele says the ongoing protests are the result of years of organizing. I think it's that this was not something that just suddenly, you know, exploded in the wake of the George Floyd murder. The Movement for Black Lives, which is a coalition of over 150 black led organizations from around the country, including Black Lives Matter as a part of the Movement for Black Lives, began back in 2014, coming out of the Ferguson uprising. And what we were able to do between 2014 and 2020 is to build and sustain an ecosystem. We created a network of organizations that would link people who were in Brooklyn with Black-led organizations that were in L.A., with Black-led organizations that were in Madison, Wisconsin, or St. Louis. And we were able to build out an infrastructure so that we could work together, you know, support each other's campaigns, but also be able to respond and have a united voice in the event of a national incident like George Floyd. So I think it's really important for people to understand that movements don't pop up overnight. There were a lot of things that happened coming out of Ferguson, a lot of things that were good and powerful, a lot of challenges, of course, whenever you try to bring together different forces who are on across a wide political spectrum, but that are black. But what we saw in June of 2020 was basically the culmination of building a lot of infrastructure over the past six years and making sure that that infrastructure was black led. What also happened is in the past six years, we've been working with our allied organizations. So multiracial organizations, white organizations that have been saying also for a half a decade, we want to support Black Lives Matter. But as we know, a lot of times with our white allies, they'll come in, not take black leadership, you know, sometimes do things that aren't very helpful. But we've been very strategic in saying this is what it looks like to follow the lead of black organizations. So it was powerful. It was exciting. We knew that coming out of the first week in June, where we had the first week of demands of sustained protests coming out of George Floyd, that we needed to sustain that to Juneteenth, where there was a whole nother coordinated mass mobilization. We knew that it was important also to have distributed events, you know, like it's not about everybody converge on Minneapolis or everyone converge on D.C. or Ferguson, but that people build mobilizations in their own cities and that we try to find ways to support one another. So that's what happened in June of 2020 wasn't just mass mobilization that really came off of six years of some tough 
exciting but inspiring organizing. Now, one of the main demands, if not the main demand, certainly of the Black Lives Matter organization is defund the police. But not all Black Lives Matter chapters uh, seem to be actively supporting community control of the police. What kind of conversation has been going on about defund and community control? Yes, I love this question because even though the movement for Black Lives goes back to 2014, the discussions around police and prisons and the abolition of those infrastructures go back decades. And so we all really consider our mentor, our mama, um, the work of Angela Davis, organizations like Critical Resistance that have been around for decades, my own organization, which is a member of the Movement for Black Lives, which is called the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, have been in conversations about prison abolition, about what it looks like to have communities that are really safe, but that are not militarized. And so some organizations are police abolition organizations. They are prison abolition organizations, and they believe that we create completely new structures that will keep our communities safe and make sure that we're, you know, free from being occupied. And all along the spectrum to people who fight for, you know, very specific reforms. They, they may not understand that there can be safety without police, but they want to at least do these five things to change what's happening now, right? So when you have a network over 100 organizations, you've got to come together. And one of the things that we have all come together around is that police departments across the country have oversized budgets and outsized political power. And so no matter what laws people put in place, you know, some states have special prosecutors, some states have banned chokeholds, you know, there's all this piecemeal stuff going on, but police departments and the individual police officers are able to fly above the law because they have so much power and they have so much resources. And also on the flip side, not only do they have oversized budgets, the things that we want funded are starved. In New York City, where I live, they canceled summer youth employment program last month, but increased the police budget. I mean, increased the amount of police officers coming in in the next fiscal year by over a thousand. And you have scenarios like that all over the country where they've cut housing, affordable housing, where they've cut homelessness services. You have cities where they have no infrastructure for people with mental health issues, but yet they're dumping tens of millions, and in New York City's case, $6 billion yearly into the police force. So we were able to come together under that large message, and then people in individual cities were able to say, well, that's the divest part, defund the police, and for us, the invest part is we want cops out of schools. Or for us, the invest part is we want affordable housing for our our people who are without homes. And so people were able to pull what they've been doing already. So defund, it looks new because it's bringing together these different campaigns. But underneath that, it's just uplifting the work that those Black-led organizations have already been doing in those cities. Another big one is to eliminate police from responding to mental health crisis. We see that in a lot of cities, you know, whether it's the Midwest or South, you've had organizers on the ground that say, when families call for health purposes, a health crisis, a mental health crisis, there should be a health professional that responds, not police. So we've come together in a way that tethers 
all these groups under the defund police demand because we want to divest from police and invest in communities. A whole host of black organizations agree in principle with defund the police. After all, who wants to give more money to the occupation army? But if defunding Mm -hmm. just results in a smaller police force, but no control over the behavior and actual scope and shape of that police force, then you just have a smaller occupation army. That's right. No, I agree wholeheartedly. And that goes back to the journey that we are in as a, again, coalition of organizations. You know, you have some people that are there. They're like abolish the police. We support that. Let's go. Right. And then you have our folks who this is new to them. They're like, I'm, I'm waking up. I, 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 I worked on this law that I thought would end racial profiling, but now it's still racial profiling. So they're kind of like on the road. <laughs> we believe they're on the road to abolition. And then you have people who are in the middle somewhere. So I agree wholeheartedly that when you defund and it's, it's one lever in dismantling, right? Because there's the money, there's the power, there's the infrastructure, right? But you you go in on where you have common ground, which is that the budgets are oversized and that that money can go somewhere else, then you kind of build your organizing, you build your infrastructure in a way that helps communities to come together. So I agree wholeheartedly. Does every organization within M4BL agree with that? Not now. But, you know, again, we are a network that's 50 years old. (laughs) And I believe we will get to a place where we figure out. And and, and one of the reasons why people can't, because they can't imagine things other than what they've known their whole lives, right? So, you know, people are taught, and not just like in what you see in the streets. We've actually had targeted media for decades that reinforced the idea that our communities need police. You know, whether it's law and order, or like when I was a little kid, it was like Cagney and Lacey. You know, all these shows that kind of make you think that this is something that is a natural part of community, that you got to have these cops and robbers, good guys and bad guys. And so peeling that away in our community, it takes some time. But what's happened this year, you've had a leap. You have a lot more people there than you had this time last year. Well, tell me, do you think the Congressional Black Caucus is on a road to somewhere that's acceptable? After all, in 2014, 80% of them voted to continue the 1033 Pentagon Mm -hmm. Weapons to Local Police Departments program, the biggest program for militarization of the police. And then, as if Black Lives Matter never happened. In 2018, they voted to elevate the police to a protected class and to make assault on police a federal hate crime. Assault on police being what the police charge you with when they assault you. And a lot of them voted on the 1994 crime bill that provided a lot of the infrastructure that our communities suffer under to this day, you know, really laid a lot of the foundation for mass incarceration, um, both the stuff that Nixon did, but then piled on top of that, the stuff that Bill Clinton did. You had some that voted for, you had some holdouts, you know, but you definitely had a nod from the Congressional Black Caucus, and that's unacceptable. And so what we see right now coming out of 2018 is that 
either you're going to get with the program or there's a new there's a new crowd coming in. <laughs> I love some of the new congresswomen in particular that have come in during the 2018 midterm elections. And I think we're going to have a widening of people coming in who are not, you know, married to this crime and punishment mentality. And they'll be able to shore up those few members that we've had in the Congressional Black Caucus that have been champions. You know, for example, Congresswoman Waters, she stood on the right side of history in 94, in 2016. And then, you know what I'm saying? So, but you you had these people that were kind of like alone in that. Um, One of the things that our movement is doing is helping to push the people who are coming in to have a better position on these issues. But I agree 100%, you know, that, that something has to happen with the Congressional Black Caucus. There are champions in the caucus. There are new and old champions. I don't want to say it's just Ilhan and Ayana coming into the caucus. There's, there's also, like I said, longtime champions that have been there, also mostly Black women. <laughs> but that that number is going to increase. And we are going to hold them accountable if they are not. And we're going to flank them when they do things that are with the people. We have to flank Ayanna Presley as she comes out and makes bold policy demands. We have to flank Ilan Omar as she does that. We have to flank Maxine Waters. We'll continue to do that. And just the, the base building that has happened will make that more possible. But you still seem to be concentrating on making the Democratic Party a kinder, gentler, and Black-friendlier place rather than finding alternatives to that corporate party. I believe it's both ends. I'm a student of the late, great Chokwe Lumumba, who ran for city council and then mayor in Mississippi, in Jackson, Mississippi, on the Democratic Party ticket. I understand that right now, our people are in that party. Our people are in the Democratic Party. I also understand that we as a people, as we build power and have these conversations, have to get to a point where we make a decision, a collective decision about where we want to be. Do we want to be in the Democratic Party? Do we want to establish a new party? You know, we have people that are already working in that lane. But I don't believe that one takes away from the other. My mentor taught me that in order to move folks, you have to kind of be in community with them. And right now in my community in Bedside, Brooklyn, that's where my folks are. But I'm the one in the meeting who always says, you know, we need to start building alternatives. We need to start thinking about alternatives, but I'm not going to separate myself from where the folks are. There were outpourings of solidarity support from folks all over the world, demonstrations in solidarity with the people who were engaged in what we call the George Floyd protests here in the United States. But often we don't see reciprocity by activists here with folks who are the victims of U.S. imperial actions around the world, that is, victims of our own government, a government that we protest when they put their foot on our neck, but not often enough protest when folks around the world suffer from U.S. policies. Yeah, it's so true. It's it's very little knowledge of, and I think also empathy around how the very same systems that oppress us are active globally. It's a heavy lift. 
But I believe we're getting there. I mean, when people were marching in solidarity with us last month, we sent out solidarity statements as far away as to the Aboriginal people in Australia. Um, and we're in communication with them about how we can support. And just even sending those messages, detailing their demands and outlining that we are in solidarity with them here in the United States was powerful. And those are conversations that we intend on continuing. Is there widespread Black understanding and support of how folks are suffering internationally? Not yet. But I believe that because the generation that's coming up is so much more connected through the digital space, through social media, that it's just, it's not a far cry to say we stand in solidarity with women's movement in Nigeria that's actually been very active all last month, demanding an end to violence against women and figuring out how we can support one another is very important. We build alliances with organizations in Brazil, and even though they're not technically international, Three organizations, three Afro-Puerto Rican organizations have joined the movement for Black Lives during the month of June and did activities on the island demanding that anti-Black racism be addressed in their communities. And so as we build out and we make kind of like these connections with the communications and the solidarity statements, how we can build out a stronger level of solidarity is key. But stepping back to my particular organization, the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, we used to do a program back in the 2000s called the Black Oldest Hip Hop Project. And so we took activists and artists from the United States to South Africa, to Tanzania, to Venezuela, to Cuba, and to Brazil over the course of a decade, exchanging and having exchanges between young people to support a lot of times work they were doing around, for example, in Brazil, Police brutality, you know, they were hyped because we were doing cop watch here in Bed-Stuy, and they were experiencing harsh, fierce police violence and murder in the streets and in the Black communities there. And so having those dialogues, you know, demanding that their governments do better, calling out our governments for enabling those acts of violence, state violence in particular, were important. And so... What we're able to do now that we have this network is build on that, you know, reignite some of that work, shore up one another and learn, really learn across all the 100 organizations that are in this together. That was Monifa Bandele speaking from Brooklyn, New York. The United States military has a larger presence on the African continent than Britain and France at the height of their colonial empires. The Black Alliance for Peace is escalating its campaign against AFRICOM, the U.S. military command in Africa, which is active in almost every nation on the continent. Alliance activist Tunde Osazua points out that AFRICOM's first big mission was the regime change attack on Libya in 2011. Libya is, is definitely a very important operation for the U.S. and reestablishing their dominance on the continent. We see AFRICOM as the colonization of Africa by the U.S. And the U.S. worked with other Western powers in order to to destroy Libya and in order to destabilize it so they could assert their own geopolitical goals and further U.S. imperialism. So now that America engaged in two months of bombing, helped establish 
the slave trade in Libya, they unceremoniously killed the Libyan leader, and they were also able to make sure the U.S. companies had access to the oil and, and many of the other resources within Libya because of their operation there, because of the NATO and, and U.S.-led war on Libya. Terrorism is really spiked in the region. There, there's been a vast increase in terms of the number of militants in Northeast Africa. We see that as part of just general U.S. strategy. Instead of working to end terrorism and stabilize the African continent, as they claim the purpose of AFRICOM is, the U.S. military and U.S. military operations on the continent actually serve as a destabilizing presence. AFRICOM has brought about the rise in terrorist activity, just like with the war on Libya. And they've been able to promote a cycle of recruitment for a lot of those militant organizations like al-Shabaab and al-Qaeda and many others. So U.S. drone attacks have prompted people to join those types of organizations that produce terrorist activity. And that activity encourages African countries to rely on U.S. military support. So we at the U.S. Out of African Network and the Black Alliance for Peace, we see the war on Libya is one of the initial forays into the recolonization of the continent and making sure that African countries are even more dependent on the U.S. You mentioned al-Shabaab in Somalia. Al-Shabaab didn't emerge as a major fighting force until after the U.S. backed Ethiopia's invasion of Somalia in 2006. Right, yes. AFRICOM was formed during President Bush's last year in office, and this was after the U.S. had spent a few months even bombing Somalia. But the U.S. had been in Somalia for decades. I think there was initially a war on Somalia that was also ostensibly supposed to fight terrorism. In fact, U.S. military operations have infested Somalia with piracy and, and kidnappings. And the American invasion of Somalia in pursuit of its own illegitimate economic interests have caused the problem of terrorism for Somalia and then also other East African countries like Kenya or Ethiopia. So definitely, al-Shabaab was working with al-Qaeda for a while. Al-Shabaab is a product of U.S. militarism, and they definitely helped to promote recruitment for al-Shabaab. And we see that Again, it's about the U.S. manufacturing demand or consent for their own militarism on the continent. So the U.S. war in Somalia continues to today because U.S. strategy is definitely one of perpetual war. So there have been a surge in drone strikes in U.S. military presence and military activity fostered by the U.S. in Somalia. And AFRICOM is obviously not trying to make their intentions clear. And so there's a lot of secrecy. Obviously, al-Shabaab and al-Qaeda even are almost benefiting in terms of their recruitment because of U.S. activity, U.S. bombing, U.S. destabilization on the African continent. And we also see a lot of smoke and mirrors on the part of the U.S. government to hide the results of their own efforts to obscure the true purpose of Africa, which is the colonization of Africa, but also to respond to economic competition with China and China's increased influence on the continent. And then now they're also talking about Russia and how Russia is involved 
in places like Libya or Somalia. So we really think that point of terrorism is just to obscure their true interests, which are to assert their own control over African land, labor, and resources, and then to make sure that they effectively competing with countries like China and, and Russia. Well, the United States always screaming China and Russia, but in Africa, almost every single country on the continent have agreements with AFRICOM and house at various times U.S. troops. And that means the U.S. now occupies militarily more of Africa than any single European power ever did. Absolutely. There are military-to-military relations between 53 of the 54 African countries. There are 46 various forms of U.S. bases on the continent, as well as U.S. Special Forces troops that operate in over a dozen African countries. And U.S. imperialism, U.S. military force is absolutely overrepresented. They, They shouldn't be there at all, but they have outsized influence compared to any other outside influence. So talk of China and talk of Russia is really, I think China poses a threat to the U.S. in terms of their economic relations with the continent, just because they've been able to, uh, they've been able to try to foster economic development and lessen the reliance of African countries on bodies like the IMF and the World Bank and Belt Road Initiative that China started has, has also made a pretty significant impact on the continent, but absolutely U.S. military forces widespread on the continent. And it's not for the benefit of African countries at all. It basically always to assert U.S. interests and to make sure that the U.S. is able to influence those countries in ways that countries like China and Russia can't. The Congressional Black Caucus has very, very little to say about Africa and nothing that I've heard about the death of six million Congolese under the regimes of four U.S. presidents since 1996. That's the biggest genocide in the world since World War II. Yeah, Congressional Black Caucus was at one point... There was the anti-war conscience of Congress, and it's been overtaken by war drums. The collective voice of elected black leaders have not really been able to fight off the U.S. thirst for war and, and militarism. And I think it is important that we engage them in the sense that we want to make sure that the CBC ha- takes a clear and explicit public position on AFRICOM to say whether they're for or against it. And I think ultimately we want to hold comprehensive public hearings on the impact of AFRICOM. I think their silence in many ways speaks to how they're not on the right side of this war against African and Black people abroad as well as at home. So I think that's a, that's a good point that you raised. Yes, the only Africa policy that the caucus has visibly is wearing kente cloth. Right. That was a very strange visual. I understand their intention. that They want to give some sort of symbolic concession to the, the movement that is happening right now on the streets and in the United States and abroad against militarism, against police violence, against policing. So, yeah, that kente cloth, they're not yet willing to take the actions necessary to address 
things like the 1033 program that has militarized Black communities in the United States. And the statistic is that there's been a 2,400% increase in the value of military equipment transferred from the federal government to police forces across the country through the 1033 program. And with with AFRICOM, during the reign of Barack Obama, there was a 1,900% increase in U.S. military presence on the continent. So we definitely see the impact of U.S. militarism here and abroad to be very much linked. And there's a, a war being waged against the working class in the United States that mirrors the war waged on African people and other nationally oppressed peoples, workers and farmers. So we say that those phenomena have to be seen as two parts of the same oppressive structure. And our campaign, the U.S. Out of Africa campaign, plays a key role in the fight against that structure. And so we're working to politically educate people about AFRICOM and foster a commitment to anti-war, anti-militarist sentiment, and then also work for the total liberation of Africa so that bodies like the CBC have to engage with those types of issues and engage with those politics, just because we see it as such a fundamental part of ending that war on Black and African people. So I think the Kente Cloth example speaks to their silence on African issues while utilizing symbols of Africans to try to pacify the movement. And, and we have to fight against that and make sure we're making the connections between the domestic and outside of the U.S., the war on Black African people. What kind of success has the Black Alliance for Peace had in engaging other U.S. groups in the U.S. Out of Africa campaign? The U.S. Out of Africa campaign is part of a broader campaign called No Compromise, No Retreat. And it's about just that, about ending the war on Black African people. Uh, So as part of that No Compromise, No Retreat campaign, we're providing a broad framework of resistance to incorporate revolutionary forces that are working on multiple interlocking issues to coordinate nationwide and local activities. So I think we spoke a little bit about the 1033 program. There's a lot of work being done to fight against that. And we've been able to work with a number of different organizations on that. And then for the U.S. Out of Africa campaign specifically, we've been able to engage them on the issue of of AFRICOM and, and try to politically educate as well as help with the coordination of things like our recent online symposium which was Rise Up to Shut Down AFRICOM. We held it on Soweto Day. So through that, we were able to bring together a number of different African and Black organizations to speak about the issue of AFRICOM and and educate a number of different people about the issue of U.S. militarism abroad and how, how AFRICOM is so central to fighting U.S. imperialism. We brought together people from the Telema Youth Movement in, in the Congo, the Moya Wataifa Pan-African Women's Alliance in Nigeria, here in the United States, we're, we're working with a number of different organizations co-sponsored that event, and we are continuing to engage those organizations as we heighten our struggle and intensify the movement against AFRICOM and against U.S. militarism. I really want to call on people to join the U.S. Out of Africa Network. There's a link, blackallianceforpeace.com backwards slash join U.S. Out of Africa Network, where they can sign up for the network to get updates on our work, to join the organizational arm of the U.S. Out of Africa campaign, 
And also to get the AFRICOM watch bulletin delivered to their inbox so that they can be part of the movement to shut down AFRICOM and then also work to end imperialism and colonialism on the continent. That was Tunde Osazua of the Black Alliance for Peace, speaking from Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. James Cohn, the world-renowned theologian, died two years ago, but his work continues to influence black political thinking. Matt Harris is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of California at Santa Barbara. Harris co-authored an article titled, In the Hope That They Can Make Their Own Future, James H. Cohn and the Third World. Harris says Cohn is considered the father of black liberation theology. That's a good place to put him. I mean, he was an important figure in the development of modern black liberation theology. His book, in 1969, sent shockwaves throughout the Christian world, black theology and black power. So I think that's the perfect place to place him as the modern father of black liberation theology. Yes, you don't hear theologians or black ministers, most of them, talking about black power. No, he comes after a wave of some other important theologians like Gay Rod Wilmore, who just passed away earlier this year, who, along with the National Committee of Black Churchmen, put out um, important pieces like a Black Power Statement that they put out in the New York Times. And he's working with these folks to really try to articulate a Black theology that works for the liberation of Black people. And you and others seem to think that James Cone's contribution was to broaden this Black liberation theology as it had evolved in the United States to give it an internationalist perspective. Yeah, that's right. So the context of this article came about as after Cone's passing, there were, of course, going to be a number of important ways of remembering his life and work. And the primary one is, as you just said, as a, as a theologian, but also as a teacher and a mentor for his Southern roots, remembered for his devastating critiques of the racism of Western Christianity, and also for, again, as you just said, the articulation of Black theology and Black power. But when Tyler Davis, my co-author from Baylor University, when Tyler first pitched the article to me, we thought we were going to simply say something about Cohn's critique of capitalism, that he should also be remembered for his critiques of an economic system that put property before people, as he said, and that these critiques and the socialist alternative were integral to his vision of black liberation theology. But as we went back and began to really research and to look at those places where the critiques were strongest, a couple of things became clear about Cohn's work. The first is that Cohn's critique of capitalism was always coupled with the critique of American imperialism. And that Cohn's, second, that Cohn's critique of American imperialism stemmed from his impressive international travels, which were in part, and after 1969, coming from invitations by those who were reading his work and using it as a resource for their own liberation theologies. For example, and they were reading him in South Africa. The South African student movement was reading him in South Africa in the 70s. Three, that these travels, conversations, and sometimes confrontations, disagreements, are happening simultaneous to the works that he's most known for, so that these international travels and dialogues are the material context out of which he is developing his conception of what Black liberation theology is. So you can't separate 
the internationalism from Cohn's black liberation theology. And so if we take Cohn as a central figure in the creation of modern black liberation theology, and we should, it can't be separated from this aspect of his life and work. And then what's embarrassing for me as a scholar of this field, this was all to my surprise, despite Cohn saying as much. I remember telling a friend that I was co-writing an article on James Cohn in the Third World, and he responded by saying he didn't know that Cohn had anything to say about the Third World. But Cohn did, and it's everywhere. And over and over again, Cohn said that Black theology's future will be determined by taking into perspective what he called the international dimension of human oppression. For some reason, this fundamental characteristic of Dr. James Cohn's Black liberation theology has been obscured, and we thought it important that he be remembered for this aspect. Well, James Cohn came up in the AME church, and it is not common to see AME ministers with a thorough knowledge and interest and commitment to the third world. No, that's right. So, I mean, he is trying to stay true to the tradition of Black Christianity. He refused to abandon what he called the fighting spirituality that he inherited from his mother and from his AME church in Bearden, Arkansas, right? This resource, this spiritual resource that he saw that uh, helped the community outlast a system of vicious American exploitation and racism. But at the same time, he sought to take that and connect it to a larger tradition of Black Christianity that was pan-African and international and focused on liberation. So, so while he's faithful to the tradition from which his mother came, he wants to connect that to a larger kind of smaller, narrow tradition within Black Christianity, one that's committed to liberation of the world from oppression. You know, it's one thing to say that one has a commitment to the third world. After all, almost all the U.S. denominations did missionary work out there in the third world before it was called that. But it's quite another thing to speak about emancipating people from capitalism and capitalist civilization. That is absolutely right. And that was one of the key distinctions James Cohn tried to make in his articulation of a Christianity, of a liberation Christianity that was connected to the third world. He sought to differentiate it from previous interactions of black churches with churches in Africa and churches elsewhere in the world. He said he did not want to replicate a colonial and missionary Christianity that sought to just spread the values of Western civilization through a Christian idiom, but instead to build with them, much like the Third World Project coming out of other places, a different conception of what the world can be. So, for example, James Cone goes to Tanzania in 1971, visiting Nerere's Ujama villages. So they don't go there to convert people, but rather they come back, and he's there with Gayrod Wilmore, and encourage Black churches to support materially the socialist development in Tanzania. This is something quite different from missionary work. It's support of liberation. And he's very early. Cohn's message obviously was considered subversive by those who ruled the current order, but how was it met by his peers, not just in the Black Church, but at Union Theological Seminary, for example? 
it's met with different responses. At Union, I believe, and I'm actually not too sure about his reception at Union, but he stayed there for a long time. So I imagine it was at least a workable relationship there. Uh, and they also, like in 1973, they brought a convening of African theologians there. So they at least supported his work. I'm not too sure about the extent of it. But more importantly, I think he was well-received internationally. So the South African Student Association was reading him in 1970, and he was viewed as a threat. He was invited to go there in 1976, and he was on his way there. He finally got a visa. He was on his way there and had a stop in Geneva at the World Council of Churches. He was informed by the consul there that his visa had been revoked, in large part because they viewed him being there and him speaking on his work in South Africa against apartheid to be a threat to the state. And so the state canceled his visa. So I think black liberation theology and its reception elsewhere was certainly viewed as a threat. But what I'm trying to get at here is what is James Cone's legacy in terms of the black church in the United States? How has he changed that sector? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, Cone was always in a minority within the black church, despite his attempt to write a history of the black church that gave it an always and ever radicalism, much like left and internationalist thinkers across the board, Cone was in the minority in the black Christian tradition. But that minority still exists, and he created a platform for which others can continue to build on. So, for example, I think of the Black liberation tradition today, the Black liberation theology tradition today, that still has a presence. For example, I was on a call that was convened by Niall Fort, a minister from Newark, New Jersey, that included Ashley Woodard Henderson, who is the co-executive director of, of the Highlander Research and Education Center, and with Erica Williams, who is an organizer for the New Poor People's Campaign. So here you have these people and Niall being an organizer in Ferguson as well. Here you have these people who are connected to historic centers of Black organizing, Highland Center, Poor People's Campaign, Ferguson, coming together as Black Christians in support of Palestine and against Israeli apartheid. So Cone created a legacy for those who want to continue to hold on to their Black Christian tradition that they've inherited, but bend it towards liberation. It's still a minority, for sure. No doubt. Yes, Dr. Martin Luther King and his colleagues in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was mostly Black Baptists, they were a small minority of the Black Baptist denomination and not looked well upon during King's life. That's right. That's right. And then, of course, sanitized and rebaptized in American Red, White, and Blue. And Cone was always try to reclaim the radical king. And in our article, James Cone in the Third World, which is the subtitle, is a reference to James Cone's article, Martin Luther King Jr. in the Third World, which reclaims King's theology as always connected to the Third World throughout his career. I mean, he's in Ghana in 1957. So again, Cone is always trying to grab onto this minority tradition of internationalism and articulate it as what it means to be a Black Christian committed to liberation. In addition to bringing to the fore the fundamental nature of internationalism to James Cone's Black liberation theology, one of the other reasons we wrote this article was to highlight 
once again, as others have before us, the importance and power of people developing languages and practices of liberation on their own terms. And for Cohn and the people he was collaborating with, those terms were religious and specifically Christian. Cohn wrote in 1979, sounding very much like Cabral in, earlier in the decade, and similar to what Cedric Robinson, Stuart Hall, Cornell West would later work out. Cohn wrote that the project of liberation required a respect for one's cultural identity. So I'm going to quote him here. Without the spiritual resources that are mediated through culture, he wrote, there was no way for a people to sustain itself in the midst of extreme forms of economic and political oppression. This is, I think, also a reminder to the left that part of the cultures of the oppressed that are important for liberation is religion. And so I think Cohn was working at a really, at a really important site to build a language of liberation from the culture of the people that he was most intimate with. So he never abandoned it. And perhaps he will never be remembered as a great leftist thinker in the tradition of an Angela Davis or a Cornell West. But James Cohn was working to build a language of liberation from the people that he was surrounded with, and that was in the church. And I think that's an important site to remember for the left to build a movement, is that it needs to take seriously the cultures of the oppressed. And James Cohn did that in a re really remarkable and influential and important way. And now that he's gone, that ought to be remembered. Matt Harris, speaking from Santa Barbara, California. In South Africa, Kweto music is wildly popular with young people, just as is hip-hop among Black American youth. Xavier Livermon is a professor of African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin. He spent years studying the Kweto music phenomenon and written a book titled Kweto Bodies, Remastering Space and Subjectivity in Post-Apartheid South Africa. Professor Livermon says Kweto music has had a profound effect on South African youth, whose 21st century politics is quite different than the young people who rose up against white minority rule in Soweto in 1976. Absolutely. And I think that part of what was happening, and I talk about this in the book a lot, is a seeming disconnect between that generation and the immediate post-1994 generation, which of course at that point is, you know, at least one, if not two generations removed. But I think that the contrast was that that generation was the uh, political, socially mobilized, not afraid to confront the apartheid hierarchy, not afraid to kind of even contradict their parents, who oftentimes were more conservative. And this post-apartheid movement where it felt like everything was about consumption and hyper-capitalism and neoliberalism. So they were often contrasted as being these just complete stark opposites. And certainly I didn't spend much time talking about the 76 generation, but I wanted to show in looking at the 94 generation, or let's call it the post-94 generation, I wanted to show that there was a little bit more complexity and nuance to that portrayal of a kind of lost youth. And I think part of what I wanted to also try to think about is what does it mean for us to write off our youth in a particular way as, as somewhat irredeemable, which to me is kind of what the term lost would suggest. And so this was really, in many ways, a love letter to that generation 
a love letter in some ways that was about my own encounter with the generation, which, you know, I am a part of in many ways, maybe slightly older than, and an effort to kind of reevaluate what were the possibilities that came out of that time, even as we accept that in many cases, the kind of aesthetic practices that were being pushed were not in and of themselves the kind of radical art and politics that we were seeing that came out of the 70s. My impression is that much of the critique of Black South African Queto music influenced youth is much the same as the critique we hear here in the U.S. of hip-hop influenced Black youth. Absolutely, and I think that was what got me into wanting to do this study because, you know, I was a little young to kind of experience the hip-hop of the late 70s and 80s. You know, I mean, I started listening to it, but, you know, when you're a little kid, there's not a lot of clubbing, you know. But I was seeing so many parallels when I got on that plane and got myself to Johannesburg and started hearing this music. And I found that, like, my experiences and the experiences that my friends were talking about with the music and with the culture seemed to be so different from the way that it was being described in journalistic accounts, in some early scholarly accounts and so forth. So I agree with you, that parallel was absolutely there. And to that extent, the book, while not a comparative study, is kind of implicitly a comparative study because I am hoping that some of the things that I'm talking about while specific to South Africa will jigger thoughts of people in other Afro-Dice or Pan-African spaces. There were, of course, hierarchies before 1994, the year of Black rule, and there are hierarchies now. In some ways, not that different. The white hierarchies remain, but there are Black ones now. Absolutely, and I think that what I was trying to get at in the text, and I think it's why I settled on the term remastery, which I'm not sure I would necessarily use again, you know, um, but I think it worked for what I was trying to get at. I settled on that term remastery because I wanted to think about the similarity of the process of trying to remaster a recording or a film, right, where you're, you're cleaning things up or you're trying to make something that already exists better, right, or clearer or more fidelitous um, in its sound or in its visual presentation, but you don't really get rid of the master, right, in every sense of the word, right? And I wanted to kind of think about that tension that I think that a lot of folks were presented with around the change that wasn't as much of a change as they thought it was going to be, right? I think that a lot of people read Black majority rule as the decolonial moment, maybe somewhat excitedly and hopefully And I think that what South Africa is being confronted with at this moment is a very clear understanding that that wasn't the decolonial moment. So now what? Particularly now that we have such a large percentage of Black people who've invested in this system in one way or another. So I think that what I was trying to do with that term remaster was to really think about both that process of the impossibility of actually remastering these systems and to make them work for Black people, but that, I think, somewhat hopeful desire that it can be. And then what tensions arise out of that that can be productive for what we want to see happen later. 
You seem to be pushing back against the impression that Black South African youth have embraced their own commodification, that they are immersed in materialism. I absolutely do. Now, look, I'm not going to pretend some of that isn't there. But what I try to think about are what are the politics of that commodification and commercialization, understanding that a lot of that is, frankly, doesn't provide a lot of hope for what ideas of freedom can be. But I think that some of it does provide some interesting maneuvers that people are making within, you know, the dice that they've been given, right, or the cards that they've been dealt, that I think can be instructive for thinking about what we do to dismantle that system. So I think there were always ways that South African youth were trying to, I think, both play with and engage the system, but also push back against it in certain kinds of ways. I think that the current period, I think, has seen a a far different kind of attempt to engage the political economy more systemically in current youth Black popular culture. But I think in the immediate post-apartheid period, I think there was this faith that these systems would somehow be made to work for Black people. And I think in that sense, yes, the ways that young Black people tried to participate in those systems were political in some way. And by me trying to read that, I was trying to push back against this idea of just, as I said, I think I'm uncomfortable with this idea that we just kind of write off a generation of people. And I think to that extent, I do push back against this sense that this is a group of people who are apolitical, unconcerned with any kind of transformative politics and are just trying to get their piece of the neoliberal pie, so to speak. So tell me, what is special and noteworthy about this South African Cueto music? I think that it represented this wild diversity of Afro-diasporic musics coming together and cultures and influence to create something new. And of course, that's not new in Black music, but I think it was something new very specifically for South Africa, particularly around, I would call it more electronic-based music. But I think that from a cultural perspective, I think that two things were interesting for me. One is what I perceived to be, I guess, the preconditions for the possible or the otherwise, the seeds for beginning to have us think in different ways about who controls what kinds of bodies, who can do what with their body, when, to whom. These were all, I think, things that got upended within Kwaito in different kinds of ways. So I definitely find that it was a space to imagine a really important kind of joy and possibility, even if it was very ephemeral, right? And, and I think for me, contained within that was a blueprint or a possibility to then begin to think more radically. So I think that that for me, that was what was interesting about it. I think that the thing, and so the things that come after, right, the things that young people are talking about now, the ways that they engage their aesthetic practices in relationship to politics are all in many ways possible because of what happened with Kwaito. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com 
where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. 